what were they like you know face to face to be around Sid was an idiot I didn't really get on with Sid uh, John's very very smart Glenn's very smart and they're nice they're, they're good people John John had a bit of a chip on his shoulder he probably still does to be honest but I got on very well with him and I got I didn't get really close to, to John until public image because I helped him put the band together and uh, that was that was great fun you know and like I say whenever I see him now it's you know we always just it's like no time has passed but yet we're both old men now you know we were not yeah <laughs> but no we weren't worried about that. Hello. Hey. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I'm Perks. You're Perks. This is Hobo. Yeah. You're Sam? Yeah. Hobo, whatever. (laughs) Welcome welcome to Facing the Crowd. Thank you. We're very pleased to be talking to the former CEO of Virgin Music Records Publishing and the CEO of Chrysler's Music. Amazing for us. Really different insight for us to, to talk to someone on the other side of the uh, of the coin, as it were. Yeah. Good. Is the sound okay? I've, it's very warm here. I've got the door open there onto the balcony because there's cars going by. Is it? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, it sounds like, fine, yeah. mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. All good. Cool. Good, good. You had a good day? Yeah, I had a, um, I went up to uh, town, met a friend for lunch, and we, we were just uh, wandering around, actually. I didn't have a great deal of work to do. So one of the nice things about my life now is I don't have to clock in every day. I don't, you know, I, I'm, I work for myself. I've got different clients that, you know, none of them own my time exclusively. So I can, you know, if I, if I feel like working all night and sitting in the garden all day, I can do that, and, you know. <laughs> I just, as long as it gets done, I can do it whenever I like. So, yeah, it's not bad at all. Been Dream great. job, mate. Dream job. It yeah. is. It really is. Yeah, it's, it's the dividend of being old, you know? It's like... <laughs> so that's, that's Steve Lewis Services, your, your own publishing company. Is, that's... No, it's not a publishing company. That's the kind of name that I give to all of the work I do. I, I've right. got different clients doing different things. I've got a partner uh, in music publishing. I still... I love music publishing. I love hanging out with songwriters. Uh, and... Um, you know, I make publishing deals, but I don't, you know, in, in the past I ran large organisations. I had a lot of different people reporting to me or different time zones. And now I don't really have that so much. Although um, three of my clients are actually overseas. It's, it's um, I plug into my partner's publishing infrastructure. So I can sign a songwriter or I can do a sub-publishing deal for a catalogue. Um, but... He's, you know, he's got staff. My, my partner's in Holland. He's got staff there who, you know, register copyrights, collect royalties from the various different PROs and collection societies, process royalties, pay the writers. And what I do is I just do, I just stay on the creative side of it, work with my songwriters, um, you know, and, and do whatever I can to help them on a much more kind of personal basis than they would normally get in a publishing company, you know, in another publishing company. Um, and the other jobs I do are like um, it's advisory boards and non-executive stuff. So um, big picture strategy and and using my relationships and and what I bring to the tech companies is a, a great interest in tech because I've always been interested in in technology and how it affects the way music's made and distributed and so on. Um, but I also bring you know fifty years of 
contacts around the world and uh, an understanding of, of intellectual property that maybe the tech guys don't have. Their, their understanding of technology, you know, is, is far greater than my own. So I try and learn from them. But I'm a guy they turn to if it's to do with, you know, copyright law or relationships with rights owners, whether they be record companies or publishing companies, I can help them with that kind of stuff because that's my kind of knowledge base, you know? Yeah. How did your um, how did your sort of whole job kind of um, evolve and change when when the whole kind of streaming thing and Spotify services all that kind of stuff come in? Did that change change the way you work a lot? Yes, um, it, it changed the way everybody worked. But I mean, I first encountered streaming when I was running Chrysalis, and that was with illegal file sharing services, LimeWire, eDonkey, you know. Napster, all of those. That was when it first started changing our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what happened was I, I'd been working at Virgin for like 20 odd years when Richard sold to EMI. I went to Chrysalis, which was a different kind of company. It was a you know, quoted company. I was on the board, the main board of the company. So it's a different kind of job. And then I went um, to stage three, which was, again, a different kind of business model. That was a company that I founded. I raised money in the city and um, founded a publishing company. Um, and when I sold it, I was going to do the same thing again. One of my investors said, OK, let's let's do it again, but let's do it bigger. Let's raise more money this time and you know, buy bigger and more catalogs. And whilst we were looking to raise the money, people asked me to do non-exec work and advisory work. And so it's not just that the landscape has changed. I've, I've watched the music industry landscape change over the 50 years I've been in it. You know, when I first went into it, it, you know, it was vinyl. It was an album business. It's now a digital business. It's, it's streaming and the currency is, is single tracks. It's not about albums anymore, really, in the same way that it was when I started. So I've seen mm-hmm. all those changes take place in the music industry itself. But I'm also doing different things now. You know, I don't run a publishing company on a day-to-day basis or a record company on a day-to-day basis. So if you're, if you're, um, so I know you, you, you had the catalogs for Aerosmith and ZZ Top and bands like that, didn't you? You, you, yeah. you, you kind of purchased them through, yeah. through, um, like backing from exterior backing, didn't you? Yeah, so, raised, yeah. Private, so yeah, you got, all, so then it's your job to kind of, make that catalogue work better and perform better, exactly. isn't it? And raise more money. That's right. um, and so how, how would you have gone about that? How, how do you get those back catalogues to become bigger and, 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 and sort of seen by more people, heard by more people? And how does it expand? How does that all work? Well, in, in different ways, there's, there's, there's ways of doing it. I mean, what you, I guess the, the place to start is, because there are performing rights organisations like the PRS and mechanical rights organisations like the MCPS, if you own a catalogue, you are going to get checks regularly. Once you've registered the copyrights, they know, oh, this track belongs to Lee Perkins, so we've, we've received £100 and we pay that through to him and then through to his publisher. And if he's on a 75-25 split, then his publisher pays 75 quid to him and keeps 25 quid, you know. And if you've got a catalogue like an Aerosmith catalogue or a ZZ Top catalogue, they're going to continue to get streams all the time. People are always going to want to listen to those songs. So those guys were always getting a check 
from established copyrights. You know, they'd be getting a check every, well, how often the, the various societies accounted, every three months, every six months, or whatever it was, without doing anything, once they've registered the song, because the record company are promoting and marketing the work most of the time. And what I would do would be, I would look, first of all, I'd look at the revenue mix, and I would see how much licensing income there was there. So that tells me if there's an opportunity to license those songs more profitably into commercials, movies, TV programs. So if I look at the revenue mix and I can see, you know, they're only making 2% of their revenue from that kind of licensing, I know that I've got a good enough team that I can increase that. It should be more like 20% or more. But it should be a definitely a sort of strong double digit figure. So then you forecast, okay, if I can increase the revenue to, you know, that amount of money, then you've got to, you've got to be able to pay for the cost of the money because when you get investment, they don't just want you to pay the money back at the end of the term. You know, they want you to pay it back plus interest. And with private equity, it's very expensive capital. My investors were private equity funds and they want three times their money back in three to five years. So for every million they lend you, they want to get three to five million back. And that's hard going. That's mm. really hard going. Yeah. But, you know, like, for example, I bought the Jerry Rafferty catalogue. And Jerry's catalogue had been administered by Universal before we bought it. And we, it was a pretty full price we paid for it. But I felt confident that we'd make the money back because I'm looking at it, I'm thinking... You've got songs like Stuck in the Middle with You and Baker Street in here, and they're, they're just not delivering their potential. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Well, because they were administered by Universal. Universal owned something like three or four million songs. Every catalogue has the same income profile. You make about 85% of your income from about 10 or 15% of your copyrights. So those 10 or 15% that make you the majority of your income are the ones you focus on if you're a company like Universal. So if you've got 3 million songs, that top slice alone is going to be about 400, 450,000 songs. That 15% that's making you 90% of your money. Well, they don't have enough people there to listen to all of those songs, all, all of those writers, every album, every B-side, every album track. But I had... 3 million songs is a lot. <laughs> Sorry? 3 million songs is a lot to get through. <laughs> Even, even the top slice, the 450,000 yeah. that are making yeah. them 90% of the money. Yeah. And also, they've got young guys working these songs. Now, a song like Baker Street was, when I bought the catalogue, must have been about 40 years old. And the guys in the exploitation department at Universal were in their 30s. So they don't remember that song. They've got to go and look for it. Anyway, long story short, because we proactively marketed those songs to music supervisors for movies and TV programmes and to ad agencies commercials and so on we increased jerry's licensing income in the first year that we owned the catalog by more than 800 percent so of course he was very happy and so (laughs) were my investors and so was i on i clever boy kind of thing you know because they were all they were all so that's that's the that's the answer but you know it's not a short answer but that's the basic answer to your question yeah that's quite interesting that you um you chose that song um jerry rafferty um Baker Street, because I've got, I've actually got a friend, um, a Scottish songwriter, a guy, guy called Brian Frill, who released a couple of albums like way, way back in the day. But mm-hmm. um, he was actually in the studio when that sax solo was performed and recorded. <laughs> so, yeah. Little... Claim to fame. <laughs> well, his claim to fame, I suppose. Yeah. Well, it's a very interesting story because 
as you may recall, I'm not, I'm not telling any tales out of school. Jerry um, was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. He had a very bad drink problem. So and, did Brian. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I, I will make no further comments about Scotsman and drink or anything like that, but most of my Scots friends can really hold their drink and they do like a drink. Um, and Jerry was one of those. And um, he was um, in the paper because there had been some incident where he was, he was staying at a hotel in the West End and when he checked out, they just found empty whiskey bottles strewn all over the room. And it was in the newspapers, Jerry Rafferty, alcoholic, blah, 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 blah. And the sax player's guy called Raph Ravenscroft. And he had a lawyer who encouraged him to sue us, saying that he wrote the sax part. Now, if your friend was in the studio when that was recorded, he will know that that's not true. Because what actually happened was they thought Jerry was this hopeless alcoholic. Who, he was actually a very high-functioning alcoholic. He's a very smart guy. And I phoned him up and I said, um, you know, Raph Ravenscroft is, uh, you know, he's trying to get um, ownership of part of this copyright. He's saying that he wrote the sax part. And Jerry sent me his demo of Baker Street. And that famous sax riff, da, 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 he's playing it on the guitar. I mean, I've got a demo of it here. Da, dang, dang, da, da, dang, on a guitar, you know. And so we wrote to Jerry's lawyer who'd sent us this threatening letter, you know, like a letter before action. Uh, would you like to settle this? Otherwise, my client's going to go to court because, you know, he wrote the sax riff and blah, 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 blah. And uh, we sent him over the demo. And we said, um, you know, please play this to your client. This is, this is what he was asked to play on the saxophone. This is Jerry's dated um you know time time day time stamped uh, recording of this demo and um he clearly did not your client did not write it and they withdrew their claim no i bet they did <laughs> yeah, because they thought he was just going to be a mess and just go oh God, i don't know i don't remember you know i'm i'm give me a drink kind of thing you know and he was dead organized and he had you know they had this library of all of his demos and he just pulled it off the shelf sent it over to me and says play on this if they think they wrote this if he wrote the, the riff you know wow and that, that yeah, happened right down. after the, um, the White of Shade of Pale case. I don't know if you remember that, but no. the song White of Shade of Pale was um, credited to Gary Brooker, who was the singer in Procol Harum. Mm -hmm. And the keyboard player was a guy called Matthew Fisher, who played the key, you know, that fantastic keyboard part, which was taken from Bach. It's a Bach fugue, apparently. I, I'm a complete philistine when it comes to classical music, but that's what I'm told. And... Uh, Matthew Fisher took Gary Brooker to court and succeeded. He said that he had come up with the idea of playing that keyboard part and he should be um, awarded a share in the copyright. So as soon as that judgment came down, that's when Raph Ravenscroft sent us his uh, claim that he'd written the, the riff for Baker Street. Oh, wow. Because they thought that Matthew Fisher had won. He actually ended up with 50% of the copyright. Wow, and that's got to be worth quite a bit of money, I would imagine, right? Absolutely fortune. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could live nicely on that, just on half of that. Yeah. Just to quickly, like, pop back to the Napster thing. When, obviously, when that happened, mm. music became free to everyone, you know, in a way, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. If you had the know-how how to get the BitTorrent or whatever, you could get what you it wanted. It wasn't that hard. Yeah, BitTorrents and get it onto a CD. And you can make compilations, whatever. It was great. Yeah. Um, that would have been obviously complete shockwaves to um, the music industry, wouldn't it? 
at the time because it because it changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, and then and then you get your iTunes and your Spotify. They are giving something back, but everyone moans that it's like like free p free p or three cents per track, isn't it? Like the artist get or something. It's tiny. It's like so is it like point something? You know, one minute is free, and then and then it's like that's a done deal. That's that's the future of it, and you're only going to get this if you own a big back back catalog, and people are mainly listening on Spotify or iTunes where you're hardly getting any money back. Is what what impact does that have, or is it if if you if you bought a cat back catalog and someone's so established, people will always buy CDs still. No, um, no people are not. I mean, you're now getting older people migrating to streaming services as well. And the income that you get, Spotify, it's approximately, at the moment, per million streams, the royalty payments to the, on the one hand, the label and the artist, and on the other, the publisher and the songwriter, who are not always the same people. You know, you might have a song that was written by someone that didn't perform on it. Um, But the the combined income for the rights owners is $5,000 dollars approximately per one million streams wow and five thousand dollars four thousand goes to the record company and the artist and one thousand goes to the publisher and the composer right so i've, I've got a writer i just got an ASCAP award for a, a song called friday the artist i don't know how to pronounce it it's spelled r-i-t-o-n i don't know if his name is written or right on i'm not quite sure if it's a play on words or whatever but that's had something like uh, 750 million streams and the, my writer phoned me up and said yeah it's gonna make a fortune isn't it and i said well congratulations on the award yes and then i ran through the breakdown of you know like okay of that you know those um 750 million streams you get there's you know $1,000 for it's like $750,000 gross. Then the collection societies take off an administration fee off the top. And then you've got to share that. So let's say, in fact, I think there are four writers on that particular song. But, you know, if there were, say, three writers, the arithmetic's easier. So, like, so you're, you're going to get a third of those 750 million streams. So that's, that's 250 million. And then the publisher's going to take their share of it. And so the, the money gets... Um, chipped away at every stage of the process. So you, you can't make as much money as you used to because we effectively have moved from a sales model to a consumption model. So people say, you know, like, oh, every play on Spotify only gets me point, it's something like 0.005 of a penny, something like that. And they say, yeah, but when I get played on Radio 1, I get 50 quid. Well, it's not the same because when you get played on Radio 1, millions of people are listening to it. But mm-hmm. I'm, you know, each stream is, is, is an individual person. Yeah. And because it's a consumption model, you're getting, you, once I've bought the CD, you don't know how many times I've played it. I might buy your album, take it home and play it all day, every day for years, you know, but you wouldn't know that it's still one sale. Yeah. Whereas with catalog music, every time someone goes, Oh, I want to, I fancy hearing rumors or, you know, some old classic album, you know, you get paid again. So it's a different consumption model. And also, Technology has transformed the economic model. It's inverted it. I don't want to keep talking at great length because I feel like I'm giving you some kind of university lecture or something. I don't, I don't oh, that's brilliant, Steve. I'm absolutely loving it, I've got to say. 
Yeah. Well, what what's happened because of the streaming? Like, if you want, I can go into this in a little bit more detail if, if you're interested. The model's been inverted completely. When I started in the music business, if you, if you were in a band, you, you tried to scrape together enough money to make maybe a four-track demo, which would not be the sort of quality you'd hear on the radio. You couldn't release something recorded like that on a little Fostex four-track or something, you know. But you could take it to an A&R man at a record company, and they could then perhaps put you into a 8, 16, 32-track studio to make the record if they signed you. And then they would want to own your recordings for life of copyright because you had nowhere else to go. You had to give it to them for life of copyrights. How are you going to make a record you couldn't afford to? You know, <laughs> Even if you could afford to, the record companies owned the manufacturing, the pressing plants. So they wouldn't just put you into a recording studio. They would then, when the record was finished, they'd manufacture it for you. They'd press it. They'd, they'd do the promotion. They'd take press ads, etc., etc. In return for which you would get 20% of the published dealer price, and they would keep the other 80. Now that model can be inverted because you don't need a record company to go into the studio. You don't need a record company to distribute it because anybody can upload their music to um, Spotify or Apple Music or Deezer. You go to one of the DSPs, CD Baby or TuneCore or DistroKid, and they'll distribute it to like 240 streaming services around the world. So you don't need a record company to do that for you. So then you say, well, okay, that's all well and good, but what about marketing? You know, that's where the record companies really come into play. And in a sense, that's true. You know, if you're you too, you want that kind of big marketing campaign. But if you're an independent artist and you've recorded the record yourself because you can make a record, you know, you've garage band or something on a laptop and you can make a master quality recording. A lot of records you hear on the radio were made in someone's bedroom. You know? yeah. But you can make a <clears throat> high quality recording. You can distribute it yourself and that will cost you something like 10 or 15%. Or in fact, you can do a flat fee with, um, I can't remember which one, one of the digital distributors, uh, Believe, I think it is, TuneCore. Mm -hmm. They'll do like for $49 a year, they'll distribute as many tracks as you make. And, you know, if you want to make, you know, a five album box set, $49, and it's distributed to every DSP in every streaming market in the world. You know, and that's going to cost you $49. You're not paying a record company to do it. So you've got your, you know, you've paid maybe 10 or 15% of your turnover or you've played a, paid a flat fee and the other 80% or so is yours. And you can take ads on Facebook. You can cross promote your work across Instagram, YouTube, um, Twitter. You can use TikTok. You can use all of these different social media platforms to do the job that the record companies used to take a big chunk of your money for. I've always worked in the independent sector. I've never worked for a major. So, you know, the independent sector is now taking a larger and larger share of the market because people are going, well, I don't have to give all the rights to a record company anymore. I can do this myself. And you, can, you can't even get an appointment with an A&R man these days unless you can go in there and tell them you've got X hundred thousand social media followers because mm. they're hiring data analysts instead of A&R men. Right, you know? okay. Yeah. So I talk to some of the A&R men, like my contemporaries, <clears throat> old men like me, if you like, uh, and they say, you know, I've got these guys bringing in the, these bands because they've got great data. They don't know how to do it. That's why I've had That's people say to me. It's kind yeah. of the same with our, um, like you're saying about how easy it is, uh, Steve, with, with our podcast. All we do is obviously record it in here. Obviously, the band pays for this studio. Um, and then we just pay 
Podbean and they put it up and they yeah. automatically ping it to Spotify, iTunes, Google, where it's free. Anyone can go on Google for free. Yeah. So you don't even have to pay for iTunes, Spotify, which is, that's a great thing about it. And yeah. and then we put it on Instagram, Facebook. Mm. It's up and running, yeah. you know? Exactly. It's, it's the same with these artists. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, same it's, with my yeah, It's turned it on its head completely, hasn't yeah. it? We use, yeah. we use that distro, distro kit that you were talking about. Right. It's yeah. just easy. It's just so yeah. easy. It's very easy. Technology has, has enabled independent musicians to do so much more. It's, I mean, I was, I was around when punk started, you know, but you had to get pressing capacity. You had to you know, pay more money up front. It was all expensive. You still had to get into a studio. You still had to make a record. You know, even those punk records were, they were made cheap, but not as, I mean, you can literally make a record for nothing. If you've got a laptop, you know, you can get, you can download free beats. And there's companies, you know, that I've worked for that that enable a lot of this. You know, I used to be on the advisory board of a company called Lander, L-A-N-D-O, which stands for left and right, which is online automated uh, mastering. And they've now um, broadened, what they offer their members and so now you could they'll do digital distribution they've got collaboration tools so that you could write a song you could be sitting on a guitar in your studio in london or wherever you are right now and you could write a song with someone who's in nashville or la and they've got rid of the latency so you're actually playing in real time with that person there's no latency mm-hmm. you're not like a half a beat behind them or something so you can actually play together to write songs so there's and they and they give this, you know, they give free tutorials, free plugins, free sample packs, all kinds of stuff like that. And there's other companies doing similar things. Lander happens to be one of the leaders, one of the best of them. But there are others too. And then they master it online. You don't even got to take yeah. it anywhere. It's done, up and do running. All, do it all online. Yeah. 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 So this this let's take it right back. That was obviously very interesting. But let's take it back to when you first discovered music. Um, how old were you and what was your first impressions when what, what sort of gripped you first and well in those days there was no electricity or anything like that you know we lived in a cave and we had to make a fire no. it was it was a long time ago and everything was very different um I, I first became aware of music when i mean i was born in the 50s and by the time i was like six or seven i was always you know i was i was aware music did something for me you know and it was pre-Beatles, but I, I would listen to the things that were out at that time. And some of them really, they connected with me somehow. And then in 1962, um, From Me To You came out by the Beatles, which I thought was fantastic. And I loved the hairstyles and the clothes and, and, and everything, you know. And then when She Loves You came out, that was just it. The whole world changed. That was their third single. It was, uh, they did um, Please Please Me, uh, From Me To You, and then She Loves You. I think that was the order of the singles. And like that was suddenly you had Beatlemania and the whole world went into colour. You know, like it was suddenly, you know, it was a kind of post-war, post-Second World War world until the Beatles came along. I think that's when the 60s really began, when everything went into glorious colour and, you know, um, you started to get that that was you know at that point i mean i remember feigning illness telling my parents i wasn't well enough to go to school because i wanted to um i stayed up late and i recorded um all you need is love um they did it was the first ever global satellite broadcast and i'd recorded it in the evening on my little reel to reel that i used to play around with and uh, I just wanted to listen to it the next day. And it was like the whole world had changed suddenly. You know, like you, you just, the, the Beatles just changed everything. 
and um, it was a, it was a really big deal for me. So that was when everything really clicked in, and like I became absolutely fanatical about music from the age of about ten. But I used to, Steve, Steve, I used to do that when I was a kid in the eighties. I, mm-hmm. I used to uh, the what was it, the top ten and all that used to play, and I used to like record the tracks I wanted to make my own mixtapes. Just yeah. sit there waiting to press record. Yeah. It's amazing, well, I'd, isn't I'd have, it? I'd have record. You'd have to press play and record, and there's a pause button, and you just let the pause yeah. button. Yeah. It was Adam Freeman when I was a kid. Pick of the pops, you know. <laughs> pop pickers. His, pop you know, pickers. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I all the songs that I hadn't, that had gone into the chart that I didn't have from the previous week. So I always had a quarter-inch reel-to-reel of, of, like, the current top 20 or 30, whatever it was, you know. And I would buy ex-jukebox records because records when I started the first record I ever bought was She Loves You which was six shillings and eight pence in old money and um, you could buy ex-jukebox records you could buy three or four for the price of a new single and they they've been worn and they hissed and crackled a little bit but you know you got more music for the same still played yeah. yeah that's so cool I, that. yeah. I didn't even know you could buy ex-jukebox records there well jukeboxes are, I suppose today are digital aren't they yeah, yeah of course so, but I mean, in those days, you, they had forty-five, you know, you know, seven-inch vinyl in, in in the jukebox machine in, in your local pub or wherever it was. So, leading on from that, what was the first sort of band you ever saw live that you bought a ticket for and went to see and was just like blown away or not blown away? I or... went to the there used to be a music. We're still it's still around uh, the NME New Musical Express. They did a, a poll winners concert every year at what was then called the Empire Pool Wembley. And I would have been about 13, 14. And I went to the NME poll winners concert. And, you know, you had like about a dozen bands that all come on and do like their two big hits. So that was the first concert I ever saw. Um, and the first band I ever saw, because like, that was like, you know, as I say, you'd have about a dozen bands all doing two or three songs each. So you'd have like Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, followed by Jerry and the Pacemakers, followed by, you know, I don't know, Freddie and the Dreamers. I mean, it was that kind of a bill. Yeah. But the first band I saw, the first artist I saw, I was crazy about Hendrix. And I saw Hendrix at the Albert Hall. Oh, and that wow. Was wow. Kind of landmark for me, because I was a huge, huge Hendrix fan. And I wrote off for tickets and they wrote back to me in closing the tickets and saying, we're very sorry, um, but the concert is sold out, but um, we've added a second night and fill this form in, and then you'll get priority to get tickets for the second night of the concert. <laughs> so I actually went two nights running. I'm okay, fine, I'll get another pair, I'll get another pair. So I, I actually saw Hendrix two nights running at the Albert Hall in about, that would have been 68 or nine, I think, something like that. That was, that was, that was the first artist concert I saw, and the support act was Soft Machine. Who you may right. or not know, but they were a big underground group at the time. Yeah, yeah. Hendrix's first gig, Albert Hall. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty well, cool. It was, first gig. it was my first gig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, he was such a talented guy, right? It's hard to explain. I mean, I, I've, I've looked at some of the guests you've had on your podcast in the in the past, and it's like it's quite heavy on guitar, rock, you know, metal and, and guitar driven. Rock and, and it's like it's very hard to imagine what it was like to hear Hendrix before you'd heard any of those other guitarists that, that followed him. He he played like nobody else had ever played. And you know, if you read interviews with, with people like Clapton, he, he went Hendrix played at a, a club, I think it was the, the Bag of Nails, which is like 
the bands all used to go down there after hours and, and, and Clapton was quoted as saying, I've seen this in several interviews with him, where um, he says, I went to the Bag and Hours and I saw Jimi Hendrix and I just went home and I looked at my guitar and I thought, I, I just might as well give up. <laughs> and this was when people were writing on walls, Clapton is God. Yeah. You know? And he was known as slow hand and, and he could do all of that virtuoso guitar solo and stuff. So afterwards, you, you know, you hear people that played in that kind of style with, you know, the sustain on the feedback and, you know, the distortion on the guitar and the wah-wah and all the sort of things that Hendrix did. But they're all copyists. Yeah. When, when Hendrix did it, you'd never heard a guitar played like that before. It, it was just like absolutely mind-blowing. It was like... <clears throat> Let's get on to when you first... Um, sort of you, you met Richard Branson, didn't you? And you, mm. you, you asked... I don't know how did you ask for a job at Virgin or you got to no, know I him and no 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 I applied, applied. I, I was 16 I just turned 16 I'd just done O levels as they were called then GCSEs they're called I think now um and I wanted a job for the summer holidays I wanted to make some money to buy records frankly you know go to gigs with and I saw this ad so I turned up and I, and I answered the ad and, and it, it, the ad had said that the uh, record company struck magazine young people needed easy work good money thought that's worth trying. So I phoned up and they gave me this address just off Bayswater Road. They told me to go there. So when I got there, they the magazine part of it was what was the, the record company bit was was kind of bait to get people to go in there to work for the magazine. And what they wanted, you know, so I went in there and I met um Richard's partner, Nick Powell. Virgin was founded by two people. Nick's been kind of written out of history, which is a shame because he was a lovely man. Um he passed away a couple of years ago, sadly. But um, Nick opened the door for me. And um, I said, I, you know, I'll come back to the job in the Times. I was told to come to this address. He said, oh, yeah, come in. And he pointed to this stack of magazines. And they had this magazine called Student Magazine that Richard used to run. And he said, you know, take those, two, those magazines into Hyde Park, which was just on the other side of the road. And, uh, you know, you sell those and you keep half the money. Bring back the ones you don't sell. And give, you give us half the money and the other half is yours. So I said, yeah, but I come for the record company job. Oh, well, my partner's dealing with that and he's not here. So I said, well, you know, I wasn't, I didn't want to go into Hyde Park Hawking their magazine. So I said, uh, well, can I wait? Can I meet your partner? Talk to him about it. So I said, yeah, you can wait, but I don't know how long it'll be. So I was like, that's fine. You know, I can wait. I didn't have any other opportunity. I didn't have any other job offers coming along. So I couldn't see the harm in waiting. So I sat there, you know, just waited around for Richard to turn up. And like, you know, there's all these like, you know, pretty girls walking around. And this is like, you know, I'm 16 living at home with my parents, you know. And these guys are like three years older than me, which is a big age difference, 16 to 19. You know, I'm a schoolboy living at home with my parents. Yeah. They're 19, they've left home. They're, they're living in a, you know, bed sit somewhere in Notting Hill, you know, and I'm living at home with my parents. Um, but I, I liked all the people that were coming and going. And then other people were knocking on the door and uh, they were taking the magazines into Hyde Park and, and selling them. And I just wouldn't, you know, just sat there. I'll wait, I'll wait. You know, you sure you don't want to? No, I'll wait. You know, and eventually Richard came back and uh, the, the record company job was what they basically did. They didn't have a record company. They, what they had was a mail order retail business. They were selling records through the magazine. So Student Magazine had a full page ad and it said, um, you know, get discounted records from Virgin Records, something like that. You know, and it listed um, the recommended retail price and the Virgin price and we only sold records that we liked, you know. We were, we were selling the sort of stuff we listened to. We were... Yeah, all, you got to be into it kind of thing. Teenagers, yeah. Um, and it, it said, if the record you 
want is not listed, write to Angie and we'll tell you the virgin price. And there was a coupon you could clip and, you know, you'd, uh, you'd say, you know, I want to buy this record. And then Angie would send you a letter saying, you know, this is how much it is on, from virgin. And Angie had left. And so actually the record company job wasn't a record company job. It was answering inquiries for a mail order retail business. Um, and my job interview consisted of Richard asking me questions because what they didn't realize was you, I didn't know either, by the way, because, you know, we were all making out as we went along. We didn't, you know, we'd never run a, a record business of any type, retail or label or otherwise, you know. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> them and the whole thing that was going on. And that, that was how it got started. And they gave me, you know, more and more jobs. And I went to university and uh, Richard was very disappointed that I didn't leave school and come and join him. He's still carrying on, you know. But I got increasingly disenchanted with what I was studying. And Virgin was going, when I, when I met Richard, Virgin was just was me, Nick, Richard, maybe half a dozen other people. That was the whole Virgin empire. You know, there was no, there were no shops. There was no record label. There was no publishing company. There were no recording studios. There was no airline or anything. That wasn't even a twinkle in Richard's eye, mm. you know. Um, but the time I was, I'd been at university, the time I was 21, and I'd been going in in all of my holidays. And while I was at university, of course, you know, it's, it's very easy not to work. And I was the world's worst student. I'd spent much more time at the Virgin office than I did at lectures and stuff like that, you know. And then Richard phoned me up um, just before I was due to take my finals and said, Steve, there's only one big job left. And we, you know, we really want you to be part of this thing. You know, we've been friends for a long time now. And this was by now like 1974, I think. And um, he said, you know, like Simon's running the label and Carol's running the publishing company and Johnny's running the stores. We need someone to run the artist management company. You know, it's, it's the last big job, you know, like we'll be a fully integrated music company, blah, 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 blah. And I said, I don't really want to work here, Richard. It's fun. But I was already thinking, like, this is turning into a proper company. You know, by that point, Tubular Bells had come out. So we'd had mm -hmm. a big hit. And I was very close to Mike because Mike and I are the same, exactly the same age. I'm about a week younger than him. And so I used to go down to the studio, to the manor, while he was recording Tubular Bells. And I got quite friendly with him. And, you know, and I, I, I was definitely tending much more to want to have a career. It started to be appear possible to me. I was, when I was at school, I had one careers um, advice session where they told me to get a job at Falls of Dagenham on the production line. That was what, that's all they thought we could achieve at that school. You know, they, they didn't have very high aspirations for us. We were kind of written off before we got started. And I could now at that point by 74, I could see, you know, these guys are making a living at this and they want me to come and work with them and they want me to be their partner. You know, Richard's saying, you know, like, you won't work for me, you'll be the managing director, you'll be my partner, blah, 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 blah. So, I went to my, and I, you know, the, the first thing they were doing, I had to organise a, a tour, a European tour for this. I had to start managing this guy called Kevin Coyne, who I thought was fantastic. He was a singer-songwriter, and it, it, was, it was somewhere between, like, social comment a la Dylan, uh, a very unusual kind of vocal approach, a bit like um, maybe Van Morrison in some respects, and a real blues background. So he, he could do Howling Wolf. I mean, he could do Smokestack Lightning, and you wouldn't know if it was Howling Wolf or Kevin. You know, you could do that whole thing. You know, you know the song Smoke That Lightning, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Howling Wolf, right. Um, and I, I thought this guy was fantastic. And I'd been to the studio while he was recording his first album for Virgin. And, and it was like, okay, I'll do it. So I told my tutors, look, I've got this opportunity to go on, this, to go on the road with this band. And uh, I want to do this tour. And 
uh, and they said, well, okay, we, we can delay your finals. You can come back after the tour and take your finals. So, and they're still waiting. I haven't been back. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Again, I've got another side story. You're talking about <laughs> you're talking about Chibi Labels. Yeah. Um, did you ever meet any of the girls who did like the backing vocals and stuff on that? Yeah, it was the girls that worked at the Manor, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Right. I used to work with a lady and I, she was something to do with publishing. I used to be a printer many years ago. She was something to do with publishing. And I think I think I'm thinking of the right name, but I think her name was Mundy Ellis. And she Yeah, did... Mundy. Mundy was Richard's girlfriend when I met. Richard the first time. Mundy was his girlfriend, yeah. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mundy. So I, I used to do some work with her. Well, I've never met anyone else with that name. So, yeah. No, I'm pretty sure when I met Richard in 69, Mundy was his girlfriend. I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah. How funny sure. is that? You became like the A&R man for Virgin. You you was basically sorting out the tours. And... No, I didn't, actually. I, I ran uh, the artist management company for four years. Right. Um, until 78, and you see, we didn't really know how these things worked. And although I was a shareholder in Virgin Management, and although I was the managing director of the company, Richard was Richard and Nick were the majority shareholders. And basically, I was I had to report to them. And I could I was only signing bands that were they wanted me to sign bands that were on Virgin Records so that their tours got organised and the promotion was you know it was it helped them as a record company to do their job better to have competent management in place. Not that I was competent when I started, I was totally incompetent, but <laughs> I learned on the job. <laughs> By the time I'd been doing it four years, I, w- I was okay at doing the job. And uh, and I didn't like the structure anymore. So I, I went to Richard and said, I'm leaving. And uh, he said, oh, okay, well, what are you going to do? So I said, well, I'm, I'm probably going to, I had a, a sort of a, a number two, a deputy. I said, you know, Dominic and I, we're going to start our own management company. And we're going to find our own artists and, and I, could, I can sign to any record company I want. And of course, I'll bring them to Virgin, but I might, I might want to sign a band to, you know, Warners or another label. And I, I want the freedom to do that. Um, so Richard very kindly said all of the contracts with the artists that I was managing for Virgin, they were all on Virgin Records. And the contracts were with Virgin Management, not with me personally. And Richard assigned all the contracts to me and said, you can, you can carry on managing them. Which my first reaction was, well, that's very generous. But then I, I stepped back and thought, well, actually, they want these tours to take place. They want to know that these bands' lives are going to be organised because it's very good for them when they're releasing the record to know that someone's taking care of making sure there's going to be the right kind of dates and the guy, you know, they turn up on time for the interviews. You know, the managers do a good job and they wanted managers for these bands. So yeah, they gave me that. And then, like, I'd said to Richard, because we were still very good friends, and I said, um, you know, we'll have a nice smooth handover and I'm, and I'm going to leave at the end of the year. And he phoned me up in November of 78 and said, oh, don't leave, don't leave. You've been friends for so long. We've been friends for so long. Don't leave. Why don't you let Dominic run the management company day to day? You should join the board of the record company. And I liked the idea of doing that because there were a lot of bands on the label that I'd got friendly with and I wanted to work with. And, and um, I liked the idea of, working in the record company. So I, I joined the board of the record company and I, and I became, I was actually deputy managing director. So Simon, who was my boss, was the managing director. He um, he was very A&R focused. He was a brilliant, brilliant A&R man. And so like, you know, I, I basically made sure, I was like an operations guy. I made sure everything ran smoothly so that Simon could spend all day in the studio with Peter Gabriel or in a meeting talking to Jim Kerr about their Simple Minds next record or whatever it was he wanted 
you know, to do on the A&R side. And I made sure, you know, like the salesman got their priorities and, uh, you know, I signed everybody's expenses and I, I signed off on, you know, video budgets, marketing budgets, uh, independent press people or independent promotion people. You know, I basically kept the place running day to day, which allowed Simon to have more time to do the more strategic stuff and, and more A&R. I did do a certain amount of A&R as well. I did sign some bands. I signed some successful bands personally, but I also worked with all the bands that the other A&R guys signed. Mm-hmm. So I was there from uh, 78 to 83. And then Richard asked me to run the publishing company. So I moved over and I became managing director of Virgin Music Publishing. Awesome. Hmm. Um, and what about, um, <clears throat> so you were there when the Virgin signed the Sex Pistols from, was it EMI? EMI didn't want them or something, didn't they? Well, what happened was they first signed with EMI. I can't remember the order of it. I'm not, I'm not sure. They were also on A&M for about five minutes and they went in and, and uh, trashed the offices at A&M and A&M said we just don't want to the label. And then, oh, then they signed the Virgin. Yeah. In fact, I'm still friends with them. I mean, I, I actually made a publishing deal. Well, I got to know them a little bit. And then when the band split up, I got very close to John um, and I helped him put Public Image together. And, and I'm still very good friends with Keith Levine, the guitar player. In fact, I published Keith now. I, I wow. Just, made a publishing deal with Keith last year. Yeah, we've been friends since about 1978, Keith and I. Amazing. Uh, and whenever I see John, we always have a great time. Uh, John's just one of the funniest people and, and, and like just, just <laughs> fantastic company. You know? Were you but, like, at the time, were you like heavily into the punk scene, all that kind of stuff? Well, you know, it's a funny thing because that's the only artist that Richard had a very strong opinion about signing the Sex Pistols and we all thought we, we'd been working with these prog rock bands don't forget who were you know in many cases virtuoso players you know uh-huh. people like Gong I mean they were a bunch of crazy hippies who I managed as well um, I could tell you wonderful stories about Gong but they were all virtuoso musicians they, they could play incredibly well so when this whole punk thing started it was a little bit of an affront they can't even play you know and you go down to the gigs and people are pogoing and gobbing on everybody you know uh but so you saw them obviously the pistols yeah and i and i I, I remember going to see the clash at uh hammersmith odeon and it was like i I had a little bit of a revelation it it was to me it's like these are rock and roll bands you know i mean the clash at hammersmith i went to see the clash at hammersmith very early on in their career and just because I wanted to check them out, you know, there's all this talk about Joe Strummer and Clash, you know, got to see this band, you know. And they had this big fuck-off light show. I mean, you know, this wasn't punk on a shoestring. This was like rock and roll, you know, like this was, you know, it, they were aspiring to be Led Zeppelin or something, you know, in terms of the yeah. production values that they wanted, you know. Um, but they were great. I loved it. And um, when I heard Nevermind the Bollocks, it was like, it's just a great rock and roll record. I mean, Chris Thomas... And they, you know, it was, it was a great rhythm section because Sid couldn't play, but he's not on the record. It's, no, it's Glenn, right. Ben Matlock's on the record, and, and, and Glenn and, and um, Steve Cook were a fantastic rhythm section. You know, but Paul Cook, Paul Cook, um, what was the guitar player? He was a great guitar player as well. You know, so I kind of I, I like the bands that were kind of rock and roll punk, and melodic you know that had tunes and we, we tended to sign those kind of bands like the members you know the sound of the suburbs i don't know if you know that song and the ruts oh yeah i know that's Avalon's burning and penetration you know and we had some bands that were a bit more esoteric like magazine that were 
part of that same thing, but they were really more post-punk, I suppose, but part of a scene. So yeah, I was I was there for all of that. Yeah. So so you you guys at Virgin, you wasn't worried that um, the Sex Pistols were going to trash your office and and sort of ruin you know having getting the album out and sort of get bad more bad. I mean, they couldn't get any more bad press, could they? But I suppose <laughs> all, all press Infamous. is good press, isn't it? I don't know. Well. What were they like, you know, face to face to be around? Sid was an idiot. I didn't really get on with Sid. Uh, John's very, very smart. Glenn's very smart. And they're nice. They're, they're good people. John John had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. He probably still does, to be honest. But I got on very well with him. And I got I didn't get really close to, to John until Public Image, because I helped him put the band together. And uh, that was that was great fun you know and like I say whenever I see him now it's you know we always just it's like no time has passed but yet we're both old men now you know we were not yeah <laughs> but no we weren't worried about the in the office no, we had more we had more problems with Henry Cow, which was one of our prog rock bands you know they because they were all Marxists you know they come in and think it's okay to liberate things from the office as they thought you know <laughs> <laughs> and they'd be loading our toilet paper into their van or something. Like, hey, where are you going with that? You know, we liberated him. Oh, yeah. Right. So, so when he started, when they started uh, Public Image, they, what was it the second album? They had the Metal... Metal Box. Metal Box. And it was like three vinyls in an actual metal tin with a big like, sticker on it, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So you guys produced that. And yeah. that was like a metal box full of three vinyls. How could that have... Yeah, that must have cost a lot to get that together and then try and sell that. Well, did you make a loss on that? Was that a, a su- Honestly, success I, I, or you no, can't? That's so long ago. Yeah. I mean, that was, it would have been about, what would that have been about 1980, I think, something like that. I was like, you know, I, I honestly, I can't, it's about 40 years ago. I can't remember the yeah. even, to be honest. Yeah, just a random one, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. What would be your like, that favorite? sort of gig you've attended of all time would it been that would it be that first hendrix concert you went to or is there something else that sticks in the mind you must have been to so many and well i have um probably marvin gay marvin gay at the Albert hall was just a religious experience wow just fantastic he played there just after the release of i want you so you'd had what's going on followed by Let's Get It On, and then I Want You Would Come Out, which was not as easy an album to get into as the previous one. Yeah. Um, but I loved it. I, I love everything Marvin Gaye's ever done. And that, and I, same sort of thing. I, I managed to, he played two nights and I managed to get tickets for both nights. And I went and saw him for two consecutive nights at the Albert Hall. And it was, it was just wonderful. Al Green was great. The Stones... Stones in Hyde Park, that was a, just a great day out. There's the concert in 69, I think it was, Stones in Hyde Park. You just felt like you were part of a, an important cultural event, you know? It was yeah. just, it was a really special day. And more recently, I saw the Stones again more recently, and it was just absolutely brilliant. I mean, they're still, they're still great. Um, but the other one that I saw more recently that would be right up there at the very top of my list of all-time great gigs was the Eagles. Right, right. At um, well, I saw them. Tw- I saw them at the O2, and I saw them again at Wembley. But the Eagles at the O2 was just off the scale. I mean, 
I saw McCartney at Glastonbury. I mean, you know, he played two, two hours, 40 minutes or something. And there's about 20 number one records that he didn't even bother to play. That's <laughs> yeah, I mean, crazy, he, isn't it? That's what Don Henley was saying. You know, like, we're going to play a long set because we've got a lot of great songs. And when I saw him at the O2, it was just it was just all about the songs. It was like they came on. Henley and Glenn Frey were still alive. When I saw him at Wembley, Glenn Frey's son, Deacon, had taken over, was playing his part. And he looks uncannily like his father. <laughs> and plays as well as his father. It's just fantastic. But... When Glenn was alive, Glenn Frey was alive, they, he and, um, I think it was him and Henley came on. And they just, there was just like a yellow wash, no follow spots, no lights. They sat on flight cases with acoustic guitars and they just did the first few songs like that. And it was like, we don't need light shows. We don't need explosions. We don't need dancing girls. You know? <laughs> quality. And yeah, it, the quality it of it. It was just like two hours of like, just... Brilliant songwriting, brilliant performances, off the scale, fantastic. Dude, my, my closest thing I ever got to something like that was probably um, seeing John Fogarty at Glastonbury. Oh, right. That was insane. Like, well, almost, when, when they played uh, Have You Ever Seen the Rain, like, yeah. I could have just cried. <laughs> it was, I never thought I'd get to see that, you know? So, um, so you're obviously still like massively into your music and and all that kind of stuff. But do you still actively go out there and try and see like newer bands and all that kind of yeah. stuff? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I don't. You've got to know what where your expertise is. You know, I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's no point in me going out and you know listening to EDM artists because I don't listen to that music. I don't like it. Yeah, I've got guys that help me with that. You know, I've got A and R guys that. that come to me and I back their judgment you know I've had situations before I mean one of my A&R men at Virgin came in one day he was the guy that did dance for us and he said yeah I'll play this really exciting it's great it's great and I listened to it and I said look Rob you know it sounds horrible to me um I don't like it at all but I'll back you know do it sign it you know if, if you want to do it um I'll back you but um you know I, I don't think I want to be, I'm, I'm not the right person to sit down with this band and tell them what I like about this music because I don't really understand it you know I'm, mm-hmm. You know, at that point in my life, I wasn't going to the same clubs as this A&R guy was. It's a, it's a, you've got to be part of that club culture. You know, that they, they wear certain types of clothes. They take certain types of drugs. They do certain, they listen to certain kinds of music. It all fits together. And I wasn't wearing those kind of clothes and I wasn't taking the same drugs as them. And I didn't dress like them. So I had to trust this guy who did. And uh, I just said to him, like, just don't engineer a situation where I'm going to have to sit down with them and explain to them, you know, it should go because that's that's not going to work. I'm not going to, I'm not going to impress them at all. And that was the prodigy. You know? well, right. <laughs> but I wouldn't have known that that was worth signing. I wouldn't have recognised that at all. I've been really... with a guy, I, I signed a guy called Alex Ellis, and his band is called Our Man in the Field. Okay. We've got an album out called Comfort of Strangers, and we've just done the second album, which will come out next year. Oh, that, that, that's really my kind of you know thing. I understand that I can help him. I can work with him, you know, and, and speak knowledgeably about what he's doing and how to do it and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, EDM, I've got nothing to offer those guys. No, Electronic dance music, isn't it? Wasn't the, uh, an album I remember, like, getting when I was a kid and opening it up and seeing the Virgin logo on it was um, a Siamese Dream, Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, that was, um, that was late Virgin. That was after EMI bought it. I never had anything to do with it. Well, funny, I did. I published the Smashing Pumpkins at Chrysalis, funnily enough. Right, right. But, uh, they were on Virgin Records, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just remember seeing the logo, you know, <laughs> that's quite... So did you 
<clears throat> why did you leave Virgin and go to Chrysalis? Or was that because when, when Virgin got sold, was that why that happened? Or Yeah, they, no, the they, big... they, they didn't want me. They fired me. Oh, right. You know, I was made redundant. I didn't care. You know, they gave me a nice check and I left. It was all right. They, you know, I wasn't going to... I had no intention of reporting to their UK managing director. There's no way I was going to report to him because I felt... I could do his job and he knew I could do his job. He didn't, he didn't want to cuckoo in the nest, I don't think. And uh, I didn't want to work for, for EMI anyway, but I didn't have the opportunity. They didn't ask me to work for them. They paid me to go away, which was fine. And I took some time off. And then I had some very interesting offers and I ended up at Christmas after that. Yeah. Right. Which was, which was great. I had a really good time at Christmas. I had eight really good years there. Yeah. And then just then you went, you started stage three after that, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Stage 3 was my company. Stage 3 was a company that I raised uh, the money for from private equity funds. And we sold the company in 2010 to BMG, my partners and I. So that must have been a, a very successful thing for it to be purchased that quick. Yeah, well, it was. I mean, I didn't want to sell, to be perfectly honest. But these guys, you know, as I said, they, they normally hold a company for like three to five years before they want to sell and get out. So just a couple of more things, and then we'll let you go. So right. obviously, like over an hour already. It's been brilliant. Um, who, who was who would be that sort of the trickiest person you've had to deal with? Where you've you you, you found yourself like you are, you've got to deal with them, and it's it's an issue or trickiest situation. I don't know if that's an on the spot question or whether you can even say it. Uh, a nightmare scenario. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. Well, one that I thought was a nightmare and turned out to be a real laugh was um, I was giving John Lydon a lift home from a rehearsal once and he gets in the car and this was in days of cassettes. So uh, I said, I'll give you a lift home, John. He gets in and I I turn the key and uh, the cassette I was listening to was the ABBA album. So I try and pop it out of the machine. I go, no, said John. I love ABBA, leave it in there, he says. (laughs) We had a real laugh because no one would have believed either of us really was an ABBA fan. I, I was embarrassed. I thought he'd, he'd uh, look at me like, listening to ABBA, you're working with me, you know, and like he's looking at me like, I like, I like ABBA. Don't, you know, don't tell anyone, but I really like him as well. <laughs> so we drove home listening to ABBA. So that was quite funny. That could have gone funny. Um, <laughs> Who knew? I went around to Nick Rhodes' house, the guy from Duran Duran once, uh, and we just did took... <laughs> It never happened to me. I never happened to me. I don't think before or since. But he took an instant dislike to me, and, I, and I, me to him. It was like, one of those things. It just the atmosphere was just just not very comfortable, you know. All right. All right. It was really weird. And then there were other people I got on with great, you know. So, but that that was a very unusual occurrence because normally I find myself with people where you know I'm I'm genuinely a fan of theirs, you know, and, and uh, if you appreciate what they do you can get on with them so much better if you really do enjoy what they do, you know, which I did. I, you know, I was very lucky. I worked with a lot of people with music I really enjoyed and I felt it's a privilege for me to be able to work with these people. And I think they, you know, they get, they, they realize I wasn't sort of treating them like, um, you know, I wasn't commoditizing it. I, I really tried to help them make the best record they could make and, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know? So I mostly, I didn't have any real nightmares. I've got to be honest. It was, it was mostly pretty good. I mean, I can look back on it, you know, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm looking back on it with through rose tinted glasses, but 
That's all right. Well, did did you have to did you have to um, replace the loo roll that band took? <laughs> That's a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> we caught them on the way out, so we but we didn't and we don't know how much they was you know stuff was just disappearing. You know, again, it wasn't a big crisis. We had a we had a sitting. Some of the bands came in and 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 occupied the office. They used to call it an occupation. They came in. Henry Cow and Gong all came in and occupied the office, and you know said they. They were going to stay there in protest until we changed their royalty rates or something. <laughs> it kind of fizzled out, and they went home eventually, quietly. You know, it was, that was always, always good. Yeah. What about say like the most sort of happiest uh, celebratory moment you had with 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 uh, Nick and Richard? You know, when you was at Virgin, sort of a big moment where you all just had you know such a party and celebration of what you'd achieved or whatever at the time. Yeah. There were a couple of things. It wasn't so much parties. It was like, it was when something that everybody thought couldn't be successful became incredibly successful and you could go, look what we did there. You know, that was that was great. I mean, I remember going to see Culture Club in a dingy little rehearsal room. Um, John Henry's at King's Cross. They, they, the manager sent a car for us and we went down to see the band and, you know, like everyone had turned them down. They couldn't get arrested at the time. <laughs> and... Uh, we signed them, and then, like in a very short period of time, within like nine months, I remember standing at the back of uh, Wembley Arena, and they were the biggest band in the world. It was just such a fantastic feeling to see, you know, this band that uh, you know, like just nine months ago, we're playing in this little grotty rehearsal studio, and no one knew who the hell they were. To you know, like number one all around the world, and stardom, yeah. Were. That was just such a great moment. Just standing there, looking at this, you know, like what was it, sixteen thousand people or something at Wembley Arena, you know. All going completely yeah. bonkers, you know, and that was great fun. That was you guys out. put put them on the map, well, you know, yeah, or helped help helped them. Obviously, they're very talented. Yeah, I was very close to Culture Club. I used to I used to you know get on really well with them. Uh, still do, and uh, you know that was that was very satisfying. And then also with the Human League, you know, we'd done two albums with the Human League, and then we had. Um, the third album, which we did with a producer called Martin Russian, and it changed the sound completely. And they had, um, what was the first one? I think the first song, we, I think the first single was Sound of the Crowd, which was a sort of smallish hit. And then uh, Love Action, I think. And then Don't You Oh, I love that track. Damn, I mean, they just become huge. And it was just, it was great, because we'd done three albums with them and, you know, weren't making, you know, we were doing well, but they were a cult band. You know, they were not crossing over. And suddenly they made this pop record. And Philip always wanted to... Philip told me that what he, when he was writing songs, he, in his head he was, he was writing ABBA songs, you know. But when he sings them, obviously, it doesn't sound like ABBA anymore. <laughs> but, you know, those kind of things were... They were really special moments, you know, seeing those kind of things coming into, into being, you know, and, and just like, you know, just little things, you know, like I remember George used to come to my office to get away from the bands. I had an office with no windows, so they couldn't stand outside, you know, pressing the noses up against the window. So he'd come and sit in my office and, you know, and he came in one day and he said, uh, I've written the next single. It's a country song. I said, really? He said, yeah, you want me to sing it to you? So he sings to me and he starts going, you know, karma, 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 you know. <laughs> That's gonna you can do that like yeah. I mean that was George's idea. He'd written that as a you know, he heard a, a country song there. We right. played the band and they arranged it, you know, it's the version that you are now familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. So those little moments were like they they were all a bit it was a bit special, you know, because by that point 
I mean, these are iconic songs and artists, aren't they? Mm. You know, especially from my youth and it's amazing. You knew something big was happening. That was the interesting thing. You knew, you know, like we'd all, by that point, we'd had You Really Want to Hurt Me and it was like, oh gosh, you know, this is going to just take them to another level. You know, like this is is going to be even bigger than that. And that was number one in like 30 countries or something, you know. God, it's insane, isn't it, to think how many people have heard that. Yeah. That's those songs like in this in this planet. <laughs> it's, yeah, but they insane. didn't want to release it. I mean, I had a I got a phone call from the manager, Tony, Tony Gordon. And I wasn't really they were not a major priority at the time. Like, you know, we had other things that we were doing a lot better. And, and like it was like we'd released two singles and like we were getting ready to drop them. You know, we was having that conversation. Can you know how are we gonna break culture by? Mm. The manager phoned me up and said, uh, look, look, you've got to help me. Um, my deal with the band is that they can fire me if I haven't had a top 10 single by the third release, third single release. So, you know, can you, can you help me with this? Song? Well, all right. You know, so I set up a meeting and I talked to all my heads of departments. Like, you know, what's the roadblock with Culture Club? Why are we stuck where we are? I was like, well, they won't agree to release You Really Want to Hurt Me. And that's the only song we're going to be able to get on the radio. That's what the radio promotion is. We can get them, we can get that song on the radio. We feel confident about that song. So I get the band in and Tony comes in, the manager comes in with George and John, the drummer, and they were having an affair at the time. They were a couple. And, uh, I st- and, and George was very put out because there was a band called Hazy Fantasia. I don't know if you remember them. You ever heard of them? No. It was another white guy with dreadlocks, and they'd been on top of the pops, and George was furious. You know, how can Hazy Fantasia, how can Jeremy be on top of the pops, and you haven't managed to get me on top of the pops? And he was like, look, you know, we've got to get the right song, and the one we think is the one that's going to go is You Really Want to Hurt Me. No, we can't release it. I said, look, if you release that song, I'll make, I'll make a really good video for you. I'll do a poster campaign. You know, we'll put some money behind marketing it, you know. But it's really, you know, we really think that's, this is, uh, look, we can't release it because if we, if we do, people will think we're a white reggae band. <laughs> My career will be over. I said, George, let's worry about your career being over after we've got it started, can we? You know, like, <laughs> Because George was a star before he was a star in his own head, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I fight, Tony and John persuaded George that, that we should do it. Now, George tells a completely different story. I've seen, in fact, I was interviewed for a TV program where I got as far as, and I said to George, why can't we release Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? And then they cut to George, and George is saying, because it's about my relationship with John, and I didn't want to make that public, which is like I, not what he said to me at the time. He said people would think he was trying to be a white reggae singer and <laughs> right. that would be the end of his career, which he's totally disowned that. And we still laugh about it, but that is definitely what he said. And that changed everything, you know. And again, you always have to have a bit of luck. We, the way they used to do Top of the Pops in those days, first of all, Top of the Pops was watched by the whole country. Every person in the, you know, 18 million people would watch Top of yeah. the Pops. Yeah, yeah. It was and the it biggest was, thing. Like, you went on the program. <clears throat> music was going up in the charts and you were available to do top of the box and they would go down from the top as far down as they had to to fill 30 minutes on the program with records moving up the chart and one of the records that was above us and should have got the spot the, I can't remember who it was Ultravox or somebody I don't know they were ill and they couldn't do the spot and we, we got um, Culture Club on, on their spot on top of the box and it just exploded after that. It just went absolutely crazy you know with all of that kind of you know He's a gender bender. Is he a boy or a girl? Who, you know, what is this person? You know, what is this strange creature? But the whole country was talking about him the next day. It was fantastic. It was great. Prime time, 18 million people watching it. 
we see George had been influenced by people like Bowie. Bowie had been on top of the pops and, and he'd done that thing with uh, Ronson, um, Mick Ronson, the guitarist, where, you know, like it looked like he was going down on Mick Ronson's guitar, you know, and, and a lot of people saw that and, and he was wearing makeup and everything like that, you know, and it was all glitter. So it's not like it had never been seen before, but George was an extreme version of it, but he wasn't threatening. You, you didn't no. think he's going to come and corrupt your teenage son. You know, he went on Russell Harty and Russell Harty asked him some, you know, question about gender benders or whatever. And, and, and George said, oh, I just prefer a nice cup of tea, you know. <laughs> and like the whole country loved him. You know, everyone wanted, all the women wanted to mother him. They suddenly, they weren't scared that he was going to try and corrupt their teenage sons or whatever. It was like, oh, he's, you know, he suddenly went into this kind of different category, you know, like a lovable, you know, like Larry Grayson or Frankie Howard or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you knew they were gay, but it was unspoken. You know? yeah. I remember being a, I remember being a child, hand on heart, and thinking that he was a girl. Yeah, I thought he was a girl when I was a kid. What is, he? is he? What is it? No, I, I did, I did, I did think yeah. he was a girl. I didn't know for like a few years. <laughs> I mean, this is the eighties; it's so different then. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I, I just thought when I saw him on top of the rocks, he was a girl. Yeah, the funny thing about that was George is a big guy. I mean, he's he's big and he's brawny. You know, you wouldn't think you look at him and you think he, could, he looks like a girl. If you if you saw him in person, that'd be one big broad-shouldered girl. Let me tell you. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. So what? Last couple of I know the last couple of things, but um, obviously well, you've gone from now. doing postal orders, Virgin, when 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 the guys all started, and you met them and all that. Hmm. And now, and now Richard's got this uh, Virgin Galactic going into space spaceship. I mean, the the, the two extremes are like yeah. <laughs> unbelievable, aren't they? It, it, it's um, it really is. Yeah. Have you got a seat on that on that spaceship? No. Are you going up? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I've never dreamed about being an astronaut. That was not one of my things as a kid. You know? No, I would, no. I would much rather have been in the Beatles than uh, in a. Okay, right. This is the last question, and I know I keep saying that. We ask everyone, you've got one song. This is why I said about the Virgin Galactic. You'll get it now. One song and one song only out of any genre anywhere in history to send up into space, into the universe, from Earth, our only, our only song to go up there. What's it going to be? What is it? Is this for another... Um, species another to... species, yeah, another species to find. Someone to hear it and 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 have a listen. Only one, though. You've only got one. Well, I'm narrowing it down between Voodoo Child's Slight Return and uh, what's going on. I, I, I could toss a coin. One of those two. Probably Excellent. Yeah, send Jimmy up there. Yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> Brilliant. So. That's it, Steve. That was absolutely phenomenal. We loved it so much. It was great to meet you. And thank you so much for coming on Facing the Crowd. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Speak speak to you soon. Thanks for having me. Do you really want to hurt?